if anyone gets lost today, will be at the end of one of the four Gospels. In Acts chapter 1, verse 3, we read that Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering to his apostles by many convincing or infallible proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Today we're going to look at and consider some of the evidences and implications surrounding the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, really, where we're going to start is the first of the, of the evidences, and it's really one that we need to consider seriously and know in order to communicate to others, and that is the first evidence, evidence is really the resurrection narratives themselves in each of these four Gospels. These accounts of what happened are more or less independent, but they are also harmonious. In other words, the four writers obviously did not sit down together and conspire to make up this story. In fact, the nature of each account is exactly what we would expect from four separate accounts prepared by eyewitnesses. One example of how there is this variation in detail in the midst of harmony, is that there are a variety of statements about the moment at which the women first arrived at the tomb. Matthew says, toward the dawn of the first day of the week. Mark says, and very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen. Luke says, but on the first day of the week at early dawn. And John says, now on the first day of the week, while it was still dark. These phrases are the kind of thing the authors would have standardized if they had been working on their accounts together. But there is no real contradiction here. Although John says it was still dark, he obviously doesn't mean it was pitch black because the very next phrase in his account, he says that Mary Magdalene saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Presumably then, the women started out while it was still dark, but arrived at the tomb as the day was breaking. It's not very complicated. Another example of this variation in detail in the midst of harmony is the listing of the women who made the first visit to the tomb. And if you've ever tried to figure this out and made a four-column chart and gone back and forth, at first... It'll drive you crazy, but it's not. The listing of the women who made the first visit to the tomb are as follows, and I'll try to go in order, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew says that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Mark says Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome. Luke refers to Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them. John says, he only mentions, actually, Mary Magdalene. Now, the references from Mark and Luke throw some light on the others, explaining who Matthew's the other Mary was. 
So if we put all these four accounts together, we find that on that first Easter morning, when it was still dark, at least five women set out for the tomb. Mary Magdalene is mentioned by each writer. Mary, the mother of James, is the other Mary, and she's mentioned by Mark and Luke specifically and referred to by Matthew. Salome is mentioned specifically only by Mark and referred to by Luke. Joanna is mentioned specifically only by Luke. And at least one other unnamed woman is here. If you list all these, it becomes obvious. And she fits into Luke's references, reference to the other women, which includes Salome. And this at least one other woman is then referred to only by Luke. By the way, Mary, the mother of James, is referred to elsewhere as Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. So you see that word in there in another place. So at least five women set out. And what's the purpose of their trip? We learn from the text that it's to anoint the body of Jesus. Now this was not for preserving the body because embalming was not practiced by the Jews. But rather, it was really an act of love and devotion, putting spices and perfumes there to reduce the stench of decay, probably. Well, did they know where the tomb was? Yes. In Matthew 15, 47, at least two of them, Mary Magdalene and and Mary, the mother of Joseph, there's that other name, whose brother was James, so it's the same, same lady, watched Joseph prepare and lay Jesus' body in his tomb. And then they watched as that one ton plus stone was rolled down a little slight incline right by the entrance to the tomb into a groove, is the way they did it, against the entrance so that nobody could get in, rolling a one-ton to two-ton stone back up a little incline to get it out of the way would be um, something that more than some women and even men, many, would be able to accomplish. So the women know the difficulties they face, but they still go. The main one being... The stone against the entrance is the main difficulty. And they leave and they set out. J.C. Ryle says something very dear to all of our hearts here. He writes, To visit a grave in the dim twilight of an eastern daybreak, a grave of one who had been put to death as a common criminal, rising early to show honor to one whom their nation had despised, this was a mighty blessing indeed. These holy women had tasted of our Lord's pardoning mercies. Their hearts were full of gratitude to him for light and hope and comfort and peace. And they were willing to risk all consequences in testifying their affection to the Savior. 
It is a beautiful picture. But what the women weren't aware of yet, and wouldn't be till afterwards, is what Matthew tells us in Matthew 27, verse 62 to 66. That Pilate, at the request of the chief priests and the Pharisees, had sent a unit of Roman soldiers to seal and guard the tomb. Now, a lot of times when you see pictures of these events, you see one soldier or maybe two soldiers, or if they've got a big canvas, maybe three. But usually these Roman units were made up of 12 men. And historical evidence shows and communicates that that's usually what this Roman unit would be. So they put a seal around the edge of the stone onto the stone of the actual grave. Um, Not just wax, some really um, gummy stuff with wax that would be evident if it was ever broken. And breaking that Roman seal was punishable by death. And any Roman soldier who left or fell asleep at their post in this 12-man guard could also suffer the same fate. So I hope that gives you a picture of how serious these guys were and how much afraid um, the religious authorities were that something would happen, which did happen, but not what they thought. So let's look at what's going on here. So as the women walk, it begins to lighten up a bit. And when they finally get close, they see that the stone has been moved. They obviously were not expecting this, although it suited their purpose. They're nevertheless upset and didn't have a clue what to do. So apparently then, secondly, they sent Mary Magdalene back to tell Peter and John about this new development, which John records. In John 20, verse 2, he writes, So she ran and went to Simon Peter And the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, it's John, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have laid him. Thirdly, as the other women wait for her, Mary Magdalene, to return, the morning grows lighter and they go forward and who do they see? The angels. And one of the angels declare, he is not here, for he is risen. And they're sent back into the city to tell the other disciples. Fourth, in the meantime, Mary Magdalene has found Peter and John, who both then leave her behind as they run to the tomb. John 20, verses 3 through 9, records their view of the grave clothes, and they point out some very interesting facts. John is faster than Peter. He gets there, but he stops and looks in. What does Peter do? He's right behind him. He just blows right by him and goes goes in. Remember, this is the Peter who had just denied Christ before he was crucified. You can see the hunger already in his heart. And we know what Jesus is going to do for him a little later. But what did these guys see? Well, 
This record of the grave clothes is what they saw. And it points out that it was at this moment that John actually personally believed that Christ had risen. And he records that as he writes his account. So fifth, then finally Mary Magdalene arrives back at the tomb again and is the first to see the risen Jesus. Because we note in John's account that after they looked at the grave clothes and John's, John said he believed then that, that Christ had risen, they went, it says the quote, they went back to their homes. So there's back and forth, back and forth. So Peter and John are already left and then Mary Magdalene gets there and she's alone. But she is the first to see the risen Jesus. And two accounts record that. Matthew, uh, Mark and John both. And then on the same day, Jesus also appears to the other women as they are returning from the tomb to Peter, to the Emmaus disciples, and to ten gathered in the upper room in Jerusalem, which John records. And then a week or more later, Jesus appears to the 11 disciples. And who's there this time that wasn't at first? Thomas. And then Jesus appeared to 500 brethren at once. We read that in 1 Corinthians 15. One of the funniest things I can remember in college was uh, Josh McDowell going through this scenario. And this is 1970 to 74. I'm not sure which year it was. And so Josh had to make a, a plea to all the people who thought that it was possible for 500 people to have the same hallucination. We laugh at that now, but just think. 1970 to 74, one of the things was, oh, yeah, they all just were on drugs or something, and they all had the same hallucination. It's not possible. 500 people at once saw the risen Lord. And then abandoned disciples who were fishing on the Sea of Galilee saw Jesus in John 21. And then those who were at the ascension also witnessed the risen Lord as he ascended. And who was last of all to see the ascended and risen Christ? Paul, which he writes about. And this, we read that also in his testimony in Acts chapter 9 and also as he wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So let's go back a second and just say, well, what happened to the Roman guard? In Matthew 28, verses 11 through 15, we read this, starting in verse 11 of Matthew 28. While, and the women were going back from the tomb, so they weren't there, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. What had taken place? And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. 
And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. I hope you understand that Roman soldiers do not all go to sleep at the same time while on guard duty. And we know from the account that when the earthquake happened and the angels appeared so that people could look in and see that the body was gone, those Roman soldiers were petrified, but they were petrified in a way that made them get out of there quick. And that also is in the accounts. Now, these gospel accounts show a fundamental honesty and an accuracy. And we can call this a a natural simplicity. It's very important to realize how these eyewitness accounts go together. The Gospels do not record the resurrection event itself. Because no one actually witnessed it. As one writer said, it would have made good copy... But the disciples all arrived at the tomb after Jesus had been raised. Now, a second huge evidence of the resurrection is the empty tomb itself. And we've already hinted at this. But no matter what a person believes about the resurrection, no one can deny that the tomb was empty. Remember that right after these events, the disciples began to immediately preach about the resurrection. And that was at a time when those to whom they preached could simply walk to the tomb to see if the body was still there. The stone had been rolled away. No body. But what else is even more important? We'll mention this several times. But if anybody in authority had any legitimate knowledge of where the body was, they would have produced it so that people could see and that would put an end to this story before it ever got started and that did not happen because it could not happen the empty tomb is such a huge evidence for the resurrection that down through history there have been several theories invented to try to account for the fact that the tomb was empty nobody actually argued that the tomb was not empty. That's the interesting factor here. All the stories are about how it got to be empty. And the first is the most ridiculous. The women and the disciples went to the wrong place. I'm sure you can see through that. It's ludicrous. Two women had been at the burial, but if they went to the wrong place, all somebody had to do was go to the right place. There's the body. The most... um, I guess the one that's got the most credence is the swoon theory that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He just swooned and as a result was just thought to be dead. He really wasn't dead, so he was actually buried alive. And in the cool of the tomb, he revived, somehow extracted himself from burial wrappings weighing almost 100 pounds, moved a two-ton stone covering a doorway, and overcome the 12-man Roman guard outside and then went forth to appear as resurrected. I hope you see how ridiculous this is. But people will believe what they want to believe. A third major problem here is the problem of the Roman guard unit. Now, here we go. While they were there, 
This is in Matthew 28. Quote, And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Always thought that was an interesting picture. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. And the next thing we know, the guards hightailed it out of there to report all this to the authorities. The problem of the spear is thrust that was thrust into Jesus' side is also just totally negates this swoon theory because that proved he was dead as blood and water came out together. And then there's the problem of the barely surviving Jesus able to physically revive. Remember that Romans were in the business of execution and they were there at the cross when he died. They proved he was dead by, by putting that spear in his side because what were they going to do? They had to make sure that they were dead. The agreement was before the actual Sabbath started on Friday evening, and they broke the legs. Why? They were going to break his legs because it was by his legs that a, that a person being crucified would push up to get a breath and stay alive. So if anybody was still alive, they break the legs. He couldn't push on the nail, and he would die quicker than that. They got to Jesus. He was already dead. They thrust a spear in his side to prove it. This is not some amateurs going, oh, I think he's dead. These are professional executioners. Jesus was dead. The next story that's been invented is that Jesus' body was either stolen or moved. Well, the question here here is, but who would and who could actually accomplish something like that? The disciples wouldn't have because they simply wouldn't be willing to, to die for what they knew was a lie. They were already hiding together. They were cowering in fear. These guys were not out in the open for any reason at all. They thought they were next. The authorities certainly never would have been behind something like this because all they had to do to kill this belief, as we've already said, is to produce the body. It would have killed Christianity before it even got to the second day. Produce the body, the claim is over. Jesus didn't rise, here he is. They didn't produce the body because they couldn't. Jesus had risen. Well, there's another major evidence of the resurrection, and that's the not-quite-so-empty tomb. And it was in several of the songs that we just sang, this fact. What was left behind in the tomb that Peter ran in and saw immediately. And John, it was so amazing to him when he had stopped at the entrance that Jesus' grave clothes. And there was something about them that John saw that made him believe without a doubt that Jesus had risen. Now, what, what would that be? 
What was so special about where the grave clothes were? Well, the typical burial procedure in Palestine goes something like this. The body was wrapped in linen bands. It was probably washed first. Remember, Joseph of Arimathea was was taking care of this. The body was wrapped in linen bands and enclosed in dry spices. And in this case, we actually get a reference. John actually records that it was about 75 pounds worth of spices. And the body was then placed face up, lying down without a coffin, usually in a tomb that was cut from rock, which this one was. The linen cloths wrapped about the body, but the face and the neck and the upper shoulders were, were bare. So the wrappings only went up to barely the shoulders. And the top part of the head, called a face cloth, but it was actually above it, was kind of a turban-looking garment. And that's what, this is what is described in the gospel accounts with John telling us that Nicodemus came and helped and brought the spices. So he and, and uh, Joseph of Arimathea were, were in charge of this. So when John and Peter went into the tomb, they noticed that the linen cloths were just lying there. Just lying there. Where the body had been. And the face cloth was lying folded up from the main part. The text then says John believed that Jesus had risen. So why? What would we have seen the moment Jesus was raised from the dead? Him stirring, opening his eyes, sitting up, struggling out of the linen wrappings? Absolutely not. That would be a resuscitation, not a resurrection. What would we have seen? is the body of Jesus seeming to disappear right through the grave clothes. No struggle, no movement, gone. And the linen cloths would have just collapsed right where they were because the weight of the spices at 75 pounds would have just just fallen in on themselves. And they would have been lying there then Here's the key, undisturbed, where the body of Jesus had been. The claws over the top part of the head would be lying separately from the rest. And that's what, exactly what John saw. And why he immediately knew that Jesus had risen. Can't you just see John realizing that the grave claws were lying exactly as Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea had left them. But the body was gone. Clearly, the body must have passed right through the cloth. Now, there are a lot more important evidences, of course. All the appearances of the risen Christ during the next few weeks before the ascension 
And don't forget that all the multitudes of people who had seen the resurrected Christ were still alive as these reports spread. Hope you see how important that is. And that means there were a lot of eyewitnesses. Another one is that evidence is just the changed and transformed lives of so many disciples. And that's very, very important because these people thought it was over. And something happened that filled them with confidence and courage and a joy that was completely absent just a couple of days before. Another evidence that's really important is that the new day of Christian worship, Sunday instead of Saturday, just seemed to happen because of the resurrection. There's not even any discussion hardly of it in the New Testament. We just start reading that on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, Christians were gathering for worship had to be something really important, really majestic, really, really, really key for these people, most of whom were Jews who had believed in Christ at first, to change a couple of thousand year tradition to start worshiping on the Lord's Day instead of on Friday evening to Saturday evening. Now, there's some important lessons and implications for us, of course, with all of this. First, we've seen that God had provided a perfectly adequate evidence of the resurrection of Christ from the dead. So we need to understand that if people fail to believe, it's not because there's not evidence. It's because they just don't want to. It's because they just don't want to. It's not because the evidence is lacking. Secondly, the experience of Peter and John at the tomb indicate that the body of the Lord was a glorified, real body. In other words, Jesus was born in a man's natural body, meant for time on earth and was raised in a glorified real body meant for everlasting life. Not a ghostly body, a real body. And in this glorified resurrection body, Jesus lives now, seated at the right hand of God the Father where he is interceding for his own until the moment when he returns again in judgment. And we pray today to a powerful Lord, to an exalted Lord who will return one day to take his own, those he has purchased with his sacrifice to be with him in glory. Another important lesson is just the transformation of the body of Jesus Christ points points to a new mode of life for all believers. He's the first fruit. We're the harvest. And we'll be like him in our bodies as well 
as in his traits of character more and more and more on this earth, but there's the time that we're pointing to when it will actually be completed. Our resurrection bodies will be better than our old earthly bodies. I expected right then that for the first time in the history of this church, there would be a complete congregation exclamation of amen because so many of us are falling apart so quickly and it's painful. Our hope is that these new bodies will not be resuscitated. They will not be frozen for how many thousand of years and all of a sudden warm back up with a bolt of something. We will have glorified resurrection bodies like Christ. Do we need to say that our present bodies hinder us? They tie us to earth, to habits, even to traits of character that we've inherited from our parents through their genes. They slow our thought processes. When we're worn out, tired, these bodies carry us away in sleep. And eventually they die. But the resurrection body will not hinder us. The body of the risen Christ is the forerunner of our bodies and it was and is wholly subservient to his wishes. It did not hinder him. It freed our Lord. And that body, after he rose, he knew no pain, no suffering, no want. And for us, there will also be that freedom. Those who put their hope in all they know outside of Jesus Christ, how many men down through history have have seriously looked for a fountain of youth? It's one thing to be a good steward. It's another thing to hope entirely in what we used to be, have, or what we can do now to keep it going as long as possible. That part may be stewardship, but to put your hope there is vain. It is futile. Our hope is in the completed work of Christ. In that place, with that new resurrection body, only those who know Christ, there will be no want. There won't be any limits There'll be unlimited wakefulness and unlimited opportunities for service and we have no idea how glorious that will be. And that's where our hope is. It's not here. Now all of these implications are possible because Jesus completed his mission, which is what the resurrection proves. He lived the perfect life demanded of each of us. Why? Because he wished to purchase a people for himself who would not be enslaved by sin and therefore justly condemned by holy almighty God to eternity in hell. Jesus came to die. He came to pay the penalty that I deserve. He knew that. That was his purpose. He didn't come to give us a kick in the rear so that we could do better, always be victorious here and never, ever suffer. 
That is a lie straight from hell. He came to give us new life in himself, to show us what it means to know the one who created us that we have rebelled against in our hearts, every single one of us, from our first breath. Not because we deserve anything from him at all. We have no merit to place before him and say, look what I've done. It outweighs all this other bad stuff, but look, I, this, this will outweigh it. It doesn't. If there was any other way that we could be saved in Christ, we would have known about it. God had to send his own son to do what we couldn't do, live the perfect life, so that he would not just be an example, so that he would be a substitute and take the wrath of God and his condemnation on sin upon himself. And Jesus was willing to do this to limit himself in a human body while he was on this earth as a baby. And he never wavered. And every breath was in love and commitment to his purpose. And he completed it. And if you think of those things now that you see what happens after he rose from the dead, how he brought Peter back into fellowship with him. And forgave him. Peter, who couldn't have gone farther from one extreme to another. And John, who referred to himself in his writings as the disciple that Jesus loved. That tells you something about John. He and his brother James were known as sons of thunder. You know anybody that's been changed like that? This is a remarkable story. It's one of hope. It's the rock upon which we stand. He demonstrates that love for us on the cross. And it's really hard to even come up with a worthy description. When he returns, he will either be known by you as your creator, savior, and Lord, or as your creator, who is now your righteous judge. Only two options. We implore those of you who do not truly, genuinely know him, who have been in a state of rebellion or trying to get away from him or trying to just do what you want to do your whole life, you have not submitted yourself to him. We beg, implore, and plead that you would trust him because of who he is and what he's done. Only then will you know why you are here, why he created you. He, out of his love, wants us to know him as your creator, your savior, your Lord, the king. It's what you were made for. And that is our plea. He took all of the condemnation for sin upon himself. Those he came to save know that the wrath of God they deserve was born by Christ on the cross. Complete forgiveness can only be found in him. True rest and peace can only be found in him. Your only hope is in him. 
Real life is only found in Christ. Let's pray. Oh God, we celebrate this event every day of our lives, especially every Sunday as we worship together. But especially on this day, this specific day, thank you for bringing to mind again the love from your heart to us and the person of your son. Thank you that his sacrifice was complete, that we can stand before you clothed in his righteousness if we believe in him, if we trust in him, depend on him. Oh God, we pray that you would work in our hearts. We pray that you would turn hearts, open eyes. We pray that you would regenerate hearts to know you, the greatest blessing in life, to know the one who made us. And we ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please stand? Find your voices again from the beginning. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. You're dismissed.